be seated. I encourage you to make your way to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45. The colloquial proverb reminds us that it ain't over till it's over. In other words, don't quit what you're supposed to keep on doing until the time you are supposed to do it actually runs out. Or, never quit early. Persevere to the end. You never know what might happen. It ain't over till it's over. Another folksy saying exhorts us to bloom where you are planted. In other words, don't waste your days wishing you were somewhere you are not doing something you have not been called or equipped to do. Get busy making the most of the situation in which life has placed you. It ain't over till it's over. Bloom where you're planted. Endure, if you will, one more. Not so commonly heard, but we hear it from time to time. There are no accidents. This saying has to be taken properly, of course, but it reminds us that dumb luck and pure chance do not run the universe. God does. There is a purposeful design for everything. There are no accidents. These sayings are not biblical as such, but if taken properly, they do reflect divine wisdom, and I think they're serviceable to us. So I'd like to use them as simple hooks on which to hang the profound theology that emanates from the entire account of Joseph in the last section of Genesis, and especially from this 45th chapter to which we turn our attention again this morning. If we could picture it this way, no pun intended, it is as if the theology here is a picture it's a beautiful picture of the truth of God. We must come to terms with this picture. But these proverbial sayings, these little folksy statements, are kind of the hooks on which we will hang the picture. Now, when you go into someone's house and you see a beautiful picture, you don't take it off and look at the hooks behind, do you? They're, just, they're kind of unimportant, these little hooks, but I think they will serve us here to see what God is saying to us. They will kind of, in a sense, take the theology of this passage and set it forward in front of our face that we might see it effectively. The picture is the issue. That theological picture seen in the experiences of the fractured family of Jacob is how life works under the sovereign reign of the Most High God of heaven and earth. Let's remember our context. Chapters 42 to 44, Joseph has labored with tactical and logistical brilliance to create for his brothers a second and final opportunity to do what? To vent their jealousy and respond wickedly to their father's unjust favoritism by removing Benjamin, the last son of Rachel, from their lives. These are the very men who seethed with such bitter, vengeful anger against Joseph that they callously threw him into a dry cistern and left him to die. These are the same men who ignored his impassioned pleas as he cried for them to come to their senses. Please, let me out. He cried from that well. These are the same men hearing those pleas that sold their brother into slavery and maintained a fraternal lie for 22 years, telling his father Jacob, 
that he was dead. Jacob's family is a sensual, lying, fractured mess. It is deeply marred by parental favoritism, sibling rivalry, jealousy, and a spirit of vengeful violence. But the picture has been taking on some new color as we work our way through the book of Genesis. God is slowly transforming the heart of this family. Remember chapter 44, if you'll go back there in verse 21, we saw that transformation beginning. I meant to say chapter 42. Chapter 42 and verse 21. Chapter 42, verse 21. Remember here before Joseph, who at this point has not revealed to them that he understands their Hebrew language. They say to one another in his presence, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. God is working in their conscience and bringing them to terms with their sin. Down in verse 28, after the silver had been placed back in their sack that first time, verse 28, my silver has been returned. He said to his brothers, here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? They're coming to terms with their sin. Then we come to chapter 44. At verse 18, we enter there as we looked a couple of weeks ago at Judah's speech, chapter 44 and verse 18. Judah, the man who earlier convinced his brothers to sell Joseph, the first son of Rachel, into slavery with no regard for his father. Now, 22 years later, here he is, representing his brother Benjamin in defense, all of his brothers really representing them as he speaks, but he's defending Benjamin. And what does he say? I will be a slave so that my brother Benjamin is not taken into slavery and so that I do not hurt my father like I hurt him once before. Now, of course, that last phrase was unstated. He does not want to see his father suffer again. I will take Benjamin's place in slavery. He is willing to subject himself to a life of torture and ridicule and oppression so that his father does not suffer again what Judah forced him to suffer earlier. And so the theme as we come back to this chapter now today, Jacob's sons had come to terms with their sin. In Judah's speech, that becomes clear to Joseph, who is still incognito before them. It's time for reconciliation. And so Joseph, who has hidden behind the mask of his Egyptian identity, now lets it drop. The game is over. The testing is done. It's time for reconciliation. Two weeks ago when I was with you last, we moved into chapter 45 because it's simply, simply psychologically impossible not to, to go to chapter 44 and stop right there as Joseph is just about to reveal himself. But I'd like to go back to, to those eight verses and to turn them just a little different direction this morning and consider the entire chapter here. We find in the first 15 verses that Joseph speaks, revealing himself, first of all, to his brothers in the first eight verses. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. 
And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Remember that phrase in the Hebrew is that they heard it and Pharaoh's house heard it. We don't know if that is audibly or through report, but obviously in some way audibly someone hears it and the message is transferred. It's a very significant event is the issue. We might also add here the Hebrews were known to display their emotions in dramatic fashion. The Egyptians prized emotional restraint. To be an Egyptian leader, the people expected that their leader would remain cool, calculated, in charge, restrained. But perhaps it is for this reason and maybe so as to protect his brother's reputation that Joseph asked all the Egyptian attendants to leave the room. And once they're gone, 22 years of emotion burst from Joseph's breast and flow out in tears and loud crying. And remember, the brothers are undoubtedly dumbfounded here. What in the world is going on? They, they knew this man to be given to rash outbursts of anger and to harsh, arbitrary commands. But what to make of these tears? They stand before a weeping prime minister, blinking in confused disbelief, which is just about to be ratcheted up dramatically. At this spot, right here, as he stands before them weeping, Joseph knows all and his brothers know nothing. They are fully operating under the belief that Joseph is probably dead by this point. The man before them is the great ruler of Egypt, whom they fear, and before whom they now plead for their lives as thieves of the worst kind, betraying thieves. Comparing back to 42-33, I think that Joseph now apparently speaks for the first time directly to his brothers in Hebrew. When he says in verse 3, to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Every time Joseph has spoken with his brothers, he has had to suppress a heart bursting with passion for his aged father. And now I think that's why the phrase comes here, is my father okay? It's the thing that he's wanted to ask. It just explodes from him with impassioned concern. Well, who answers him? No one. No one can find their voice. They stand in front of him in speechless terror. The mask has fallen and mouths drop. They're terrified. The Hebrew word speaks of paralyzed fear. Goosebumps starch their body from head to toe. Their brains are numbed and dizzy with confusion. Their ears are tingling, stunned by what they're not sure they could possibly have heard correctly. They were scared already accused as the most hideous thieves before a man who could execute them, but now they are really scared. No one moves. No one speaks. They stand in frozen terror with wide eyes and gaping mouths. Verse 4, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. Like robots, they shuffle forward on command, hypnotized by the dead brother who now stands very much alive in front of them. And they stare at him in disbelief as he speaks these reassuring words. And you'll notice this as you go through. I think this is understanding the scene properly. And of course, we're reading into it a bit to put some flesh on these bones. But he seems to work here very hard now at getting them to believe that it's really him. As he says to his brothers, verse 4, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. Now he's already told them that, but he has to tell them again. And they're closer. I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. The family secret is laid out before them. 
We notice as well that his words here turn to soothing words of reconciliatory speech as he continues verse 5, And now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Don't be distressed. The Hebrew words don't means don't be grieved or hurt or pained. God sent me here, not you, God. Now, had they sent him here? Obviously they had. They had done him evil when they sent him into Egypt, into slavery. And Joseph had not forgotten it. Verse 4, I'm the brother you sold into slavery, he just told them. But the key here is that by faith, Joseph had grown to see past his evil brothers and realize there are no accidents. A slave and a Midianite trade caravan, no accidents. Ripped from his home, his culture, his father, and stripped of his freedom, no accidents. Falsely accused of rape and imprisoned, no accidents. Forgotten in prison, abandoned for years in a pit as the best years of his life drain away, no accidents. God sent me here to save lives. Joseph had grown over the years to understand that what his brothers had done to hurt him had been used by God to accomplish good Walkie writes it this way. I appreciate his phrase here. From a worm's eye view. We often hear the bird's eye view, but he speaks of the worm's eye view. Joseph's story reads like a nightmare. A cacophony of outrageous excesses unjustly inflicted upon him. Reason alone might conclude that history is absurd and our experience is the result of blind chance. But Joseph chooses the heavenly perspective that God is working through him to bring about what is good. Have you chosen that perspective? Joseph did. We might ask here, well, so what? So he sees it as God who's behind things here. So what? Here's the so what. If you can follow me here for a few moments. Let's park here and just think about this. Here's the so what. By interpreting life this way, and especially suffering as as an integral aspect of God's sovereign design, Joseph experienced two profound benefits. First of all, he experienced the capacity to be at peace with his past suffering and to forgive his brothers. There's only one way to genuinely deal with past suffering. You must believe that God rules heaven and earth. I'm not talking about little tiny offenses that we forget about and get over. I'm talking about genuine, deep suffering. You've got to believe that God rules heaven and earth. If you do not, you will not have the capacity to forgive, and you will never really be at peace with the past. You will remain bitter and unforgiving, and the past will continue to haunt you. You will nurse grudges, wallow in bitterness, fear, or hatred. What people have done to you in the past, the wrongs that you suffered can become worse in the future if you don't come to terms with the fact that there are no accidents. There's sin, there's suffering, but there are no accidents. 
the root cause of these ongoing trials is really not so much our suffering as it is a failure to say with assurance, God sent me here. Joseph was at peace with 13 years of slavery and 22 years of lost memories in Canaan because he knew God works all things according to the pleasure of his will. That's the first thing that I see here in Joseph. He's able to forgive the most horrendous offense because he knows that God rules. He can forgive and he can be at peace. Secondly, another benefit here, I think, is the joy of knowing that he was God's servant. That might be tied right into the first, but I, I think just another nuance of it. He enjoyed knowing that he was God's servant in all of this. When you genuinely believe and submit to the truth that there are no accidents, that God works all things together for good in the end, then you are freed to see this liberating truth. I am a servant of the living God. Joseph is at peace with where he is and how he got there and all that he suffered in the process because he realizes that he's a servant of God. Specifically, we see that coming out in verse 7. God sent me here ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. This word remnant is a concept that carries great theological significance in the history of God's people as it's recorded, particularly in the Old Testament here. Joseph served God's cause as an important key in God's plan to keep alive the family to whom he had promised a great offspring. He made a promise to Abraham that his children would live and there'd be a great people. Well, those children are in great famine right now. And something needs to be done to preserve their lives. And of course, as we know from Genesis 15, to get them all down to Egypt. This is part of God's plan from the beginning. But starvation in this day and age is a very real enemy. And so Joseph says, I'm here to serve the purpose of God. And all that you have done has been part of that plan. And I understand it. We can all see ourselves at times as we look to the past and perhaps right now as suffering. But do you see yourself as a servant of God in your suffering? Whatever it is or was. You may never understand what your trials are accomplishing in God's purposes in this life as Joseph did. And we have to be careful here because it's easy to say, well, that's Joseph. It's quite obvious what God was doing. What a wonderful life he was now living. Might have been worth it all. We don't want to write it off that quickly. You know, one of the reasons that we may not see what God is doing in our suffering is the fact that we've really not come to terms with the fact that we are his servant. That all that he's taking us through is, to, is as part of being his servant to accomplish the goal that he wants us to accomplish. And I must add this as well. For some of us, we're going to have to wait till heaven. It's not going to make sense, all of the suffering necessarily in this life. That's the life of faith, and that's where we place it in God's hands. For some, it's like Joseph. It all makes sense down here. But it might be possible, even if... We have come to terms with the fact that we are the servant of God in all of our trials and sufferings, that He is doing something very specific with us. It is still possible to never quite see that until we get to heaven. 
Just think of that, though. There's going to be a greater splendor there than Joseph ever knew on earth. There's going to be a greater knowledge of the plan of God for your life than Joseph ever had on earth. His palace was supplied by ancient Egyptians. There waits for you as a child of God a dwelling place that Jesus has made for you. It's all going to make sense. It ain't over till it's over. We must persevere. We must move forward in suffering and to bloom where we're planted. That's what, I think, if we use that cheap hook, that's what Joseph is doing here. He is moving forward in the place where God has put him to accomplish his work. So concludes Joseph as he continues to speak to his speechless brothers there in verse 8. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. You did not send me here. I've been sent here by God. We say again, yes, they did send him here. And it would have been self-serving for them to have offered this line to him. Now, you've got to realize here, Joseph, we didn't really sell you into slavery. This is all God's plan. Isn't this great? That would have been foolishness for them to say that, but Joseph's right. God had sent him here. Now, I know this is probably etched in your brains, but let's look at it one more time. Here today, I won't promise this is the last time, I'm not saying that, but <laughs> what does Joseph see here? Why did God send him here? What does he say in verse 8? What is he driving at, even in verses 6 and 7? He's driving at the fact that God in his providence has sent Joseph to Egypt. And here in Joseph's strategy, it is to provide spiritual recovery for his family and it is to provide in the physical famine and that's what Joseph is now emphasizing here God has had a purpose in sending me here now we could put in here if you wanted to I don't think it works quite well but we could put in here the strategy of his brothers to oppose him to enslave him to ruin him but that strategy itself factors into Joseph's strategy now and God is using him to provide physical relief for the children of Israel. That's what Jacob is saying here. That's what he is seeing here. Does Joseph, I said Jacob, Joseph rather, does Joseph stand before them and say, look at me brothers, I'm a self-made man. Look at how high I have risen in Egypt. There's none of that pride in Joseph here. Now he says, I'm like a father to Pharaoh. I am the Lord of Egypt. He's speaking the facts. He's speaking the truth. This is the case, but why does he speak these truths? So he can boast in his position? No, so he can say, only God could do that. And he has placed me here to deal with the physical famine that our people are suffering. There's been a promise made to Abraham that there would be a people, and God has sent me to keep that people alive. And now for Joseph, it's time to move forward with that mission to sustain the life of God's people. 
Sometimes I think we might fail to read that as we look at this narrative. Verse 9 and following, as he now offers to get Jacob down there to Egypt, is not just an idea. It's not just purely a matter of he wants to see his father. That's much of it. But it's a means of getting them here to sustain their life, and Joseph knows that that is why God has led him down the path that he has taken. Verse 9, Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You you shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. There's probably quite a bit said here that's not recorded. We're getting what is necessary. And he probably has explained to them the dream, uh, Pharaoh's dream and his interpretation of the dream and how he understands that there's going to be these years of famine coming. I have been sent here by God. God has revealed truth to me in the dream of Pharaoh and I know what is taking place. No one questions him on this. But he says, hurry. Hurry down there. Now, or up there, I guess it would be. location-wise, uh, as far as on the map and as far as the topography, but he says, hurry up there. Get, down, get up to my father Jacob. Consider that for a moment. You know, there might be a reason or two for them to delay for a little bit. You know what I mean? I mean this is not going to be an easy scene to go back to Jacob and tell him that Joseph is alive. He says, please get on your way. You need to get moving. Bring him back. He wants them to uh, make that speech as quickly as possible and to bring their father back to the land of Goshen and the northern uh, Nile Delta, northern Egypt. It's an area in ancient records that is recorded even to this day as being favorable to herdsmen, to their flocks. So go get father, bring him up here, and we can live in the best of the land, the best place for herdsmen. Because this famine is going to continue. In other words, he's saying there's really no option here. Communicate this to to my father. There's no option. He must come up. It will be five to six years when you count another planting. It'll be actually six years before anyone is going to reap any crops in Canaan. You'll never make it. Please come down. The next verse seems to indicate the brothers are still in shock. They're still not sure if they are hallucinating or dreaming or what is going on. But we read in verse 12, you can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin that it is really I who am speaking to you seems to be calling upon them to consider his speech and to look at him closely. The Hebrew text refers to, him, to them looking actually at his mouth. See that it's me. Notice me. Now remember, he's, he's, they haven't seen him for years. It's been 22 years. He looks different than they remember him, not only physically, but as an Egyptian now. And he's saying, get close. Look at my mouth as I talk to you. You see that it's me. And there might be, it's, it's a very confusing verse in the Hebrew, but it might be also he's saying, listen to how I'm talking to you. The interpreters that have been there perhaps had had accents as they used their Hebrew language, but he said, I'm talking to you straight up. I know who you are. You hear my language. It sounds like you. It's me. It's me, he says in verse 12. Verse 13, Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Now again, we might read that and say, that's pride. Why does he keep wanting everybody to know how he's risen to power? Think in terms of how he sees himself as God's agent 
But you notice what else he's doing so very graciously to his brothers? He doesn't say, go down there to dad and admit to him what you did to me. That's not the message. The message is, go down there to my father and tell him what has happened. Tell him where I am. Tell him how God has worked through circumstances to bring me to this unique place. Then, verse 14, he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. These, of course, the two brothers, uh, full brothers, the sons of Rachel. He very appropriately expresses his love here. He falls on his neck, uh, the Hebrew uh, reads and that phrase refers to the shoulders to the neck that whole area in other words they're embracing and they're with their heads next to each other they are crying and weeping and so thankful to have been reunited we could really get into that and it's all conjecture but to imagine what the relationship between joseph and benjamin might have been before uh, joseph was sold into slavery he was at least 17 years of age when he was sold into slavery Benjamin, we don't know the date or the relationship of his birth. We just know that it was uh, uh, quite a bit later. And uh, he, of course, was not part of the sale of Joseph into slavery. And having the same mother, they probably were very close as an older brother to a younger brother might be. And now, here they are again in one another's arms. It's a touching scene. But no more touching than what we see here in verse 15. That's how Joseph responds to the brother who did not have anything to do with his sale into slavery. What do we make of the other brothers? Verse 15, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. They have not been talking for a while here. They don't have anything to say. An amazing scene, but he embraces the very men who sold him into slavery. No vengeance, no bitterness, no anger, no intimidation or retaliation. Afterward, finally, they find their tongues. Joseph kisses each one. Their tongues are slowly loose, and they have 22 years of stories to catch up on. Stories of new wives and children, of flocks and prosperity, of a famine of the land of Canaan and developments there. There were certainly quiet words of confession and quiet words of forgiveness that very well may have been spoken as he wept with each one. Well, the scene shifts now as the move to get Israel to Egypt now quickens its pace. Pharaoh provides for Israel in Egypt in verse 16 and following. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. Joseph was clearly appreciated and respected. Even the servants in Pharaoh's administration were happy for him. They might have been very jealous for him in many respects, but they're very happy for him, and they agree with this plan. It's an offer of provision by the one man in the whole region who could provide it. God is moving providentially to preserve his people. Verse 19, he says, Pharaoh, you are also directed to tell them, do this, take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings because the best of all Egypt will be yours. Carts were not used in Canaan, 
but they were widely used in Egypt. And they are to take these Egyptian carts and to bring their families, but leave their things behind. That is, leave behind everything that might hinder the process. And don't worry about the little things that you have. Just come here and, and all of the wealth of Egypt is here and will be given, you will be given what you need. Pharaoh's offer is so magnanimous, he does not want them to bring anything that will slow the journey. And so, with Pharaoh's blessing, Joseph now provides for his brother's journey, beginning at verse 21. So the sons of Israel did this. That is all that Pharaoh has said, all that Joseph has said. They're going to follow through with the plan. They did this. Joseph gave them carts, as Pharaoh had commanded, and he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothing. And this is what he sent to his father, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey, that is for Israel's journey, Jacob's journey. And we notice here, in fact, in verse 21, that the word Israel is used. It's rare in the text, but here it is Israel that is used, the national name drawing our attention again to the fact that this national identity is being brought down into Egypt. Not yet a nation, but these people being brought down into Egypt. The Israelites. Why does he give changes of clothes? Remember here, we're not talking about our setting at all, but these would be tunics that could be worn for years and years and years and would not have gone out of style. That, that was not really the, the issue in their day. But giving clothes was a very common way of expressing friendship of expressing love, and so he gives them all a change of clothes, and he gives a unique gift to Benjamin. Now some might think here, well, is he testing them again? You know, Benjamin's going back with a load of silver and five changes of clothes, and we only get one change of clothes. I, I, I guess I'm swayed much more by the interpretation. I think here that he is actually giving them the benefit of the doubt. I think he is saying to them, I know this jealousy issue is over. He has every right to express unique love to his full brother. There's nothing wrong with that. They have come to understand electing love, even if it's not always fair. And he gives to Benjamin this unique gift that I think in doing so he trusts his brothers that there will be no problems as he treats Benjamin with this unique treatment. Verse 23, he loads also these things for his father and for the journey back that the Israelites would be able to come down to Egypt being cared for very well. Verse 24, Then he sent his brother away, brothers away, and as they were leaving, he said to them, Don't quarrel on the way. They've changed, but let's not press it too far. Right? He knows them. He knows the kind of people they've been. The Hebrew regats, which is translated here, quarrel, is, uh, the, the meaning of the word is to be disturbed, to be agitated, to quiver with violence. It's usually a word that expresses agitation growing out of some deeply rooted emotion. What might that emotion be? I, I, did, I looked a long time at this word and I did find somebody that said, really the translation's not all that clear. Because I, I wonder when you look at that word and what it means, an agitation coming out of some deep emotional experience, some tremoring or quivering, I don't know, I, I, this is just conjecture, but I wonder if the quivering might have something to do with the fact that they've got to face Jacob here too. 
But if, they, if you take it as the text takes it, as most translations take it, the quivering is a quivering of anger rather than a quivering of fear. Therefore, it would be an anger toward their brothers, and certainly that's an appropriate phrase. Maybe it's cheating, but I'd like to say maybe it's a little bit of both. Uh, I don't know. We don't know exactly what he meant, but he is concerned about their trip back. You guys have to get along with each other. Or maybe he's seeking to encourage them to, don't be shaken on your journey back. Well, they do face their father, and there is not much said here, and so we don't want to belabor it too much, but what a picture it must have been. Verse 25, So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. Now, you're with the brothers here, you're a, little, a, a reporter on a camel or something, and you're journeying along with them, and I tell you, it, that had to be a tough moment as they saw Jacob's tents coming into view. Now, I'm sure that they've come to terms with their sin. They've come to terms with the providence of God. They know what they've got to lay out before their father, but this has got to be something of a troubling moment. As they approach, what could be in their hearts? They must approach their father with the dread fear of a man who must do something he desperately wants to avoid but knows he cannot. This had to be a hard conversation, but the text does, really, does not expand on that at all. Dad, we have some news to share with you. Let's make sure we're sitting down in the tent here, okay? Joseph is alive. Verse 26, they told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. And Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. Now, obviously, there's a much longer discussion here, and this is, a, this is a summary. It would have been wonderful to sit there and listen how they told this story. And, in fact, we don't even know if they ever told him that they sold him into slavery. Perhaps Jacob, at his age, maybe that's part of the deal. Joseph says, don't bother them with that. Don't bother him with that. We don't know about all of that. I'd like to assume that they were clear and confessed their sin to him, but none of that is important to the text. We don't know what they said. What we do know is that unbelief strikes Jacob's heart. He is stunned, our translation reads here. The Hebrew word, his heart grew numb. Jacob's despairing heart was stopped dead in its tracks by a message of hope. Jacob's heart had learned to live with a heaviness of despair at the earlier loss of Joseph. Now his heart is arrested by this hopeful news. I don't think any human heart could filter this and function normally. He had prepared his discouraged heart to hear this message, we didn't bring Benjamin back. He was ready for that one. He didn't want to hear it, but he was ready for that one. This he was not ready for at all, and it stops his heart. How could he believe such a fanciful story? But, verse 27, when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, if we can read that very precisely, then it might mean as well that he revealed, I'm the one you sold into slavery. We don't know that, but he, they tell him all that Joseph has said. They explain the whole thing. And so here they are convincing their father, just as Joseph had to convince them that it's really Joseph, I'm really alive. So they have to convince their father he really is alive. They tell him everything that he said, and they say, so to speak, look at those carts over there. 
Do you really think we robbed those? You think we got out of Egypt with carts and no carts around here? You think we got out of Egypt with carts like that and made it all the way up here with all of that stuff? Joseph sent that. So as verse 27 says, Jacob, when, when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts, Joseph had sent to carry him back the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Finally, Jacob caught his breath and he believed. It's a key theme through the book of Genesis. God revealing truths that the chosen people have a hard time believing. But Abraham believed and he walked in faith. And Isaac in his own small way believed the promise of God when it came to the son of choice, Jacob rather than Esau. And Jacob has believed and now does believe that God has done it. And so he journeys to Egypt. And we learn, here's the hook. If I can just hang this picture on these hooks just briefly for a few moments. It ain't over till it's over. Jacob learns this, doesn't he? I mean, this man has been through some intense suffering. 22 years. Some of you have lost loved ones. I don't know if you've lost a child that you knew and that you loved and you prized and was taken away at 17 years of age. I guarantee this, though that's never happened to me, I guarantee this, there's not a day that goes by you don't think of that boy. 22 years of grief. And we have seen in the words of Jacob, he'd given up. He had thrown up his hands and said, my life, it's ruined. What did he say when he said, go ahead and take Benjamin? Go ahead. It's over for me if he dies. He's a man in depression, in discouragement. His days were hard, 22 years. And you could go to Joseph or Jacob and you could have said to him, Jacob, it's not over yet. And he might have had a real hard time with you saying that, but it wasn't. It isn't over until it's over. He had thrown up his hands in resignation and frustration, but the scene ends here with reconciliation and with food and with life and with hope and with joy. Think of where this family has come. A fractured family of bickering and lying and vengeful sons all on the verge of starvation. Joseph is dead. Benjamin's life is in jeopardy. The man in Egypt is against them. Jacob throws up his hands and says there's no hope. It wasn't over yet. I don't want to issue that word lightly. But take it to heart, those of you who suffer. It isn't over yet. Don't make it over until it's really over. Hang on. One day after another. Jacob learned this, and so did Joseph, did he not? Thirteen years in slavery. Anywhere in those thirteen years of misery and suffering, 
Joseph could have thrown up his hands and said, my life is gone. I'm a ruin. It's over. But what did Joseph do? Hook number two, he bloomed where he was planted. What happened in Joseph's life? Put him in slavery? He becomes the chief servant in Potiphar's house. Accuse him of rape and throw him in prison? What happens? He runs the jail. Wherever he is, he takes the circumstances, the situations that God has providentially placed in his life, and he makes the very best of them. Joseph knew that God ran the universe and he got busy right where he was. Now let me ask you, would you think that Joseph would be the kind of man who would stand before Potiphar or who would stand before Pharaoh and would question his will? as a servant of these men? That would be absolutely foolish. No servant does that. You don't stand before your master and question what your master wants you to do. You do it. You're a slave. Do you think then that Joseph would treat his God with less respect? But That's a battle for us, isn't it? To treat our God, the ruler of heaven and earth, the glorious God, with less respect than we would treat a master. When he says to you, I want you to go through these dark waters, remember this phrase, I'm a servant. When he wants you to suffer, when he wants your heart to be broken, when he designs not to stop the sin that someone commits against you, Repeat this phrase, think it, grab it, I'm his servant. I go where he wants me to go, and I bloom where I'm planted, and I hang on to the end. It's his call. As Pastor Pratt read earlier from the words of Jesus, Mark 10, Let's just note them as we close. How did Jesus put that? Verse 44. He says to his disciples concerning <clears throat> leadership, concerning prominence in God's work, Mark chapter 10 and verse 44, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. One of the great problems that we face is we begin to think that we are the kings of our lives. And that it really ought to be up to us to determine who hurts us and how they hurt us and what we go through and what we don't and what ought to work and what doesn't work. We have to realize there's no accidents. That doesn't mean we're going to understand it, may not even until heaven, but what is left to us is to serve with gladness. As Jesus served with gladness, to become a ransom for many if necessary. The issue is not so much what we are experiencing or what we have suffered. The issue is, do you see that God rules supreme? 
and that you are his servant with a glorious future. Press on. Wait in faith. It's all going to make sense in his time. But never forget that we're his servants. That's who we are, and that's the best place to be. Let's bow for prayer.